Well, since the fall, we've been in a series in the book of Psalms, in the middle of your Bible. We've been calling it, Pour Out Your Heart to God, a phrase from Psalm 62 that I think aptly summarizes all of what we see in the book of Psalms, so much of it anyway. Because whether it's something hard that we're pouring our heart out to God to in, or whether it's something glorious and beautiful, like praise, as we've done this morning, it is a pouring of the heart out to God. And today we get instruction about how to pour out our heart to God when things don't seem right. Psalm 37. Turn there if you have a Bible. There are a few themes in Psalm 37, and they're scattered all over the psalm. Last week we looked at Psalm 32, and I said the, the outline's very clear here. It's kind of a it's kind of a psalm that falls off the bone if you're trying to break it down. It has different themes, and they move along a progression. It's just the opposite with Psalm 37. It has many themes, and it's like they've been tumbled around in the dryer. They're all over the place. It's purposely repetitive. The psalms, in general, repeat a lot of the same stuff, right? I mean, how many psalms call us to praise Or how many psalms call us to cast our burdens on the Lord? That theme, those themes are all over the place. They're purposely repetitive. And then specific psalms are also repetitive. Don't despise the repetition of God's word, by the way. Know that it's there on purpose and we need repetition. In Hebrew poetry, it has that special purpose of emphasizing something. And so rather than sort of tune out when you've heard something over We instead, in God's word, should tune in that he keeps saying it in a similar way all through something like a psalm, like Psalm 37. Well, I said there are several themes, and all the themes of Psalm 37 can be found in the first eight verses. There are 40 verses. We won't start by reading all of it. We'll begin by just reading the first eight verses since all the themes can be seen here. It's another psalm of David. And David writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. Well, back to verse 1, notice... It says, don't fret or worry. And it says, don't be envious. Two themes. That's how the psalm begins. And like so many psalms, the beginning tells us what the whole thing is really about. The psalm is about these two things of worry and envy. Two very strong emotions. Earlier this week, I planned to talk about both worry and envy. 
But as I prayed and thought about it some more, I thought I'd focus more on envy today for a few different reasons. One, I've done messages on worry. I think you can go to the website, and we have different tags, by the way, that go on each of the sermons, so you can look up a topic like worry, and you'll probably find, I don't know, four or five different messages on worry that I've done over the years here, but I've never preached a message on envy. It's probably telling that we don't actually have a category on our website for sermons that are about envy. And I have a feeling it's not just me. Probably all of us have given little thought to envy. Most of us don't think that we struggle with envy. I thought that until last week. There's also a lot of overlap between worry and envy, so there's good reason, I think, to just focus on envy. Whatever we say about envy this morning can also really apply to worry. So if at the end you still think you don't struggle with envy, but you know that you struggle with worry, well, everything we've said will, I think, almost directly apply to worry. Worry and envy are evil twin sisters. Worry is the passive sister. It looks at difficult circumstances or difficult people, and it's afraid. It retreats. That's worry. But envy's the aggressive sister. It's unhappy with circumstances or people, and it revolts. It gets bitter, even angry. It includes resentment. Worry and envy have the same root, the root being that there's a problem out there. Something's not right. There's an injustice. There's an inequity. And they have the same prescription, as we'll see here in this psalm. That's why they're treated together in this psalm. But again, I want to focus on envy this morning. And related to that, one of the things I want to accomplish today is for us to see just how sneaky how sinister and how sinful envy is. But that's not where I want to start. I actually want to start in the opposite direction. I want to start by saying that on one level, envy is understandable. I didn't say that it's right or that it's okay, but it is somewhat understandable in this fallen world. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, Not every form of envy, but with certain forms of envy, they start out by seeing injustice, true injustice, inequity, something wrong in this world, and it's concerning. The book of Job is a book like this, isn't it? Why does Job suffer and not his dumb, annoying friends? We're not told. Why does Job suffer and not his witchy wife. We're not told exactly. Psalm 73 is another place that entertains this problem of injustice or seeming inequity. Would you turn to Psalm 73? Keep your finger in Psalm 37, turn to Psalm 73, and then when we're done in Psalm 73, keep your finger there. We'll be back and forth between these two psalms this morning. Because they're both about envy. There are two big envy psalms. Easy to remember, 37, 73. 
Psalm 73 in verse 3 says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And nothing happens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Does he know that they're doing this? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, (laughs) these are the wicked, always at ease. They seem to increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, this isn't the sum total of truth. In some ways, this isn't theologically true. But it is experientially true. The psalmist in Psalm 73 is saying, it doesn't seem like there's any benefit to righteousness. It seems like it would be easier to be free and wicked. It seems like they actually get more money, not less. It seems like they can just Be so carefree to not worry about rules, but do whatever they want. Do whatever feels good. They look so strong. It looks like it doesn't matter. In fact, it looks like they have it better. It doesn't seem right. And that's exactly right. It doesn't seem right. And in some ways, it's not right. There's something wrong in this world. Sin has entered this world. Things are broken. This world is twisted. So sometimes, not always, but sometimes, envy starts out simply noticing that something doesn't feel right. But that's not where envy ends. And that's why envy is not just understandable, it's also Sneaky and sinister and exceedingly sinful. And that's why the Lord repeatedly commands us to flee it, to fight against envy. Oh, I know, it's a, it seems like it's just a, a petty sin, if at all. Envy. As if there's such a thing as a petty sin. But the Lord stands Against it. That's the first thing to stress here. The command to flee worry in envy. Notice in your sermon notes page, Psalm 37 gives us, I think, three different categories or themes to work with among these 40 verses. The first is the command to flee worry in envy. You see it in verse 1 fret not yourself. Boy, that really loses something of the power. Don't fret because of evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers. (laughs) You see it also in verse 7. In the second half of verse 7, again the command, don't fret yourself over the one 
who prospers in his way, the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain, cut it out, get rid of anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. Now, the most common and most obvious temptation to envy for David, who writes Psalm 37, was to envy his enemies. Those surrounding idolatrous nations around Israel at that time, they seemed to prosper. They were always threatening. That's why David uses words like enemies, wrongdoers, the wicked. It's very black and white for David. It's a question of what theologians call theodicy, the justice of God, the rightness of God. How is it that the right seemed to be on the wrong end of the stick? Why is it that the smug, prosperous, wicked nations can threaten God's people's existence like they do? That's David's most common, most typical expression or temptation toward envy. But envy has all kinds of forms, many faces. No two envies are the same, in a sense, because we all have our own. But God is against all envy, period. Some of us are tempted to envy the world and make it a question of righteous versus unrighteous. Some of us wonder whether it really does pay off to follow the Lord. It seems easy for them to ignore the Lord, to do what they want. It seems like we keep getting this trial in that trial to grow us into the image of Christ or something. And, we, you know, we, we scoff at suffering and think the world probably does have it easier because they're not under his discipline like we are. Or maybe you don't struggle with that kind of envy, but you, you envy in-house. You envy other Christians more than you would be tempted to envy a non-Christian. That's just as wrong. Our envy isn't partial. It will lock onto anything and anyone that seems better. That's the key. What seems better? Envy has two major ingredients desire and resentment. Just desire by itself, seeing something and liking it, something you don't have, something that someone else has. That can't just be admiration. And admiration by itself isn't wrong. It's wrong when admiration turns to coveting and resentment. In fact, the opposite of envy would be admiration plus thankfulness and joy. Or even praise, seeing something in someone else, something they have that you don't. Liking it and being thankful For it in their lives. The Lord has given it to them and they enjoy it. That's the opposite of envy. The opposite of envy is Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy flips Romans 12, 15 on its head. And it rejoices when those we resent are weeping. Oh, good. Got a little bit of a bad spell. Envy weeps when those we resent are rejoicing. 
Envy rejoices when the lofty fall. So here's a test. Do you want to know who you envy? Well, who is it that if they fell, within your heart you know there would be a little smirk of satisfaction? Maybe it wouldn't be public. Maybe you wouldn't admit it to anybody. But you know it in your heart. There's that slight comfort in some people's upheaval. I knew he'd eventually get his. I knew she didn't really deserve that all along. I knew God wouldn't let them get away with that. Maybe you don't. You don't yet think that you struggle with envy. So let me press further. As I said, I don't think that I thought I did until giving it more thought and prayer this last week. I wonder if it's so present in our lives that it's simply the air we breathe. It's kind of like a fish who doesn't know he's wet because he's never been non-wet or dry. He's never been outside the water Maybe we think we don't struggle with envy because most people around us don't know that we do. Did you notice no one accidentally gets caught envying? Almost every other sin you can get caught. Not envy. Maybe if we have those around us fooled, it's easier for us to fool ourselves. Maybe we don't think that we struggle with envy because we simply won't let ourselves go there and admit that. In a wonderful message by Tim Keller on the theme of envy, he says envy has a stigma of enormous pettiness. What he means is that no one confesses the sin of envy, especially not the person they're not to the person they're envying. To confess to someone we were envying of, that we were envying them would make us feel petty and small. It would actually prove the case. The other person is bigger. They're stronger. They're more confident. They're more successful. Imagine at your workplace if someone walked up to you and said, I want you to know that I'm eaten up with envy towards you. You probably feel weird at first, but once you got, off, got over that initial shock, you might have as your next instinct to feel pretty good about yourself. You're envious of me? <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> glad you finally came to your senses. I'm glad someone around here knows that they should be. <laughs> In fact, I'm kind of glad you told me that because uh, I'm not even mad. I, <laughs> boy, that's kind of pathetic. Poor you. <laughs> no. No one does that. You've never heard of that story. It's never happened at your workplace. We won't admit that. So because we don't ever talk about our envy, because no one can see our envy, some of us don't think that we are envious, but hopefully this morning we're beginning to see differently Now, envy's everywhere. We don't all envy the same way. We don't all envy the same thing or the same people. But you put all of our envies together, and it it represents an encyclopedia of envies. I mean, let me just think of a few categories here. And you think of illustrations within the categories. Just categories. 
Maybe you envy someone's money, their possessions, how they got it. It looks so easy. Maybe you envy their success, the way they moved up the corporate ladder so much faster than you did. They got the promotion that you thought was in the bag for you. Maybe you envy someone's smarts. Seems like they don't have to study to make the same grade that you have to bust your buns to get. Maybe you envy someone's education. You weren't given the chance to go to that school or to afford that tuition, even though you had the grades for it. Maybe maybe you envy someone's athletic ability. Boy, if I was only taller, if I was only bigger, if, if only I had that natural talent like he does. Maybe you envy someone's looks or many people's looks. Their beauty, their their height, their weight, their looks, their clothes. Maybe you envy someone's marriage. Or even before that, their wedding. The fact that they're married and you're still not. That they have kids and you cannot. It's not wrong to want or even to pursue what others have necessarily But envy, remember, is more than desire. It's more than admiration. It's anger and bitterness and resentment as well. Maybe you resent and envy someone's family. You wish your kids were a little more like theirs. You wish their family, your family, had turned out a little bit more like that one. Or you envy that circle of friends that that person has. Oh, what a rich experience that would be to have that kind of community around you. Maybe you envy someone's happiness. You don't know why, but they just seem happy. It seems like they're just carefree. It seems like they have such ease in life. It seems like they are able to ignore the problems that everyone else seems to fret and get weighed down by. Maybe you envy youth. Maybe you envy someone's health. Lord, why do I have this to deal with and they don't? You've never had a headache? Wow, must be nice. Yeah, it must be nice. That's different than resentment, though. It's everywhere. It's in all things. It seeks to put itself in all corners of our lives. It's in the business world. If you're tempted to know that it's in the business world, hate that it's in the business world, and think, i got to get out. That's the solution. Good luck. You might think, I'll try the arts. Yeah, because there's no envy there. (laughs) I know. I'll go back to school and get a science degree because scientists are just nerds with calculators and they never look around at anyone else. They never deal with resentment, right? You who work for Sandy Labs, right? You know. It's in academia, it's in your neighborhood, it's in pastoral ministry. Pastors are not exempt from this. In fact, it's a hot spot, a hot spot for envy. How come he got to go there? How come his church keeps growing? How come I have to do this? How come my people don't seem to listen to me about this? 
I have all kinds of pastor friends who are well-known. They write books. They have big sort of well-known blogs. They speak at conferences. Boy, it's a temptation to resentment for me. I wonder, how do you have the time to do all that? How do you have the ability to do all that? It would take me five hours to write that blog post, and it takes you one That's where we have to come back to the Lord's design in our lives and his purposes for what he's given us, the gifts and circumstances that we have. But it doesn't mean it's not a fight. It's a fight if you're a mom looking at other moms. It's a fight to not envy others in the homeschooling community or among the sports team or at the gym or in the church or in your community group. And there are all kinds of new and powerful temptations today that weren't there 10 years ago even, like social media, Facebook and Twitter. A unique danger is that on Facebook and and Twitter, people post the highlights and headlines of their life in the best possible light. And you see those posts times the number of friends you have, times the number of years you've been on Facebook and it all compounds and you increasingly feel like your life is pathetic, like you are messed up, you're just not cool and life is bad. You don't get to do things like post just enjoying it game of Scrabble with the kids over hot cocoa. My kids are so smart. (laughs) Just had some killer family devotions tonight. 30 for 30 this month. (laughs) Just doing our weekly date night. So glad my husband put this in the budget. Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. So glad I got my taxes done early and Christmas shopping. (laughs) I don't think too many people are posting what's really going on all through the day. I'm so sick of my kids right now. I'm considering leaving my teenager on a street corner and moving to Mexico. (laughs) Huge fight with the wife tonight. No LOL here. Just daydreamed about punching my boss in the lip. No one posts that. Now, if people did, I'd sign up because that would be fun. But my experience is that even complaints on Twitter or Facebook are often put into these kind of cute, ironic jokes that almost make you think that it'd be kind of fun to be stuck with them at the airport. There'll be a good story out of it. There's that whole category of humble bragging. Really overwhelmed at work since I got that huge promotion. (laughs) Is Facebook stirring up envy? Maybe it's not. That's not a blanket condemnation. I'm saying know yourself. 
Get to know your temptations because yours are different than others. And just because 98% of the people in the world are on Facebook doesn't mean it's right for you. If it is a stumbling block for envy for you, then you can quit it. I hear it's hard, but you can quit it. But envy isn't just a modern-day problem. It's all over the Bible, and it's not a small thing in the Bible. Listen, envy was the root of the temptation in the garden. The serpent said, God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here you go. Envy him. Here's your opportunity to be like him. Psalm 106 says that in the wilderness, the people envied Moses and his leadership. Proverbs warns about envy six times. Six times explicitly, a bunch of other times implicitly. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us that most of the work that goes into this world is motivated by envy. It's vanity striving after the wind we wouldn't work so hard if we weren't trying to outdo someone Matthew 27 and Mark 15 both tell us that it was envy that motivated the Jewish leaders to seek Jesus' crucifixion it's part of the list of terrible sins in Romans 1 it's listed as one of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 Paul said that in his day, some were preaching the biblical gospel with the horrible motive of doing it from envy and strife. They didn't like Paul. They wanted to cause trouble for him. So they preached louder, more bold. Envy is the opposite of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Envy is part of what we once were in Titus 3. It's what Jesus came to free us from in that same chapter. So 1 Peter Chapter 2 commands us to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Boy, those all go together so, so cleanly, don't they? So frequently. God commands us to flee from and fight against envy. That's the first thing. The second thing is the rationale for fighting worry and envy the rationale is first that it can lead to more evil worry and envy lead to evil according to verse 8 it says refrain from anger notice anger came up started with worry then it was envy and now we're talking about the emotion of anger and wrath in verse 8 why that's where it goes Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Envy is easily justified, it's uniquely discreet, but it is a deadly cancer. It compounds itself. It's part of a tangled web of other sins. It's good when we're trying to diagnose our temptations and our struggles to try to do an anatomy of sin, to try to grab a certain sin and see how many fingers it has with other sins. So, for instance, with envy, that involves discontentment, grumbling, 
anger, resentment, bitterness. It's unloving to those who are resenting. Even worse, it questions God. Questions his goodness, questions his vigilance, his justice maybe, questions his, his care, questions his involvement. Remember Psalm 73 did that. Is he really seeing this? Is he really seeing that they're getting away with this? They can shout out to heaven and mock him and persecute his people and he does nothing? He questions God. We may think that envy is simply complaining to ourselves, but essentially it's complaining to God. And complaint is a socially acceptable thing, but it's not a biblically acceptable one. In fact, God struck many people dead at once in the Old Testament because of their complaints. God hates complaints. God hates envy. We may think that envy is enemy making a person the enemy. But it's really making God the enemy. It's been the root cause behind so many of the world's lies and thefts, even murders, even wars. Envy will take you further than you want to go. It will always lead to other sins and it will leave you empty each step of the way. Envy is like a Drano of the soul. And yet, we keep drinking it. It eats us up inside and yet makes us thirsty. Back to Psalm 73 for just a minute here. Psalm 73, we read verses 2 and 3 already, but let me point this out. It says, as for me, Verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. It doesn't say my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, because there are a lot of bad guys out there. No, there are a lot of Psalms that say that. But not this one. This one says, I almost stumbled. I was almost ruined because of envy. Envy was almost his ruin. So worry and envy lead to evil. Another reason we fight worry and envy is because the end is coming. Back to Psalm 37, the end is coming. It's in Psalm 73 as well. That every injustice is a temporary injustice. Every inequity is a temporary inequity, no matter how many decades it goes. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 37. These evildoers, these wrongdoers, they will soon fade like the grass. They will wither like the green herb. Look at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he'll not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. Remember, Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. So this isn't just inheriting Palestine. This is inheriting the earth. They will delight themselves in abundant peace. I could keep reading. The next four verses all describe the same thing. And then it's scattered, the same theme, all through the rest of the psalm. That every injustice is a temporary one. That one day God will fix all things. 
That every sin will be paid for, either on the cross or in hell. And there is a turning power. There is a sobering work about knowing that the Lord is on his throne and that there is a reckoning to come. Don't take justice into your own hands. Justice is mine, says the Lord. So we can trust him. Back to Psalm 73 again. Would you turn there? There's another chunk of Psalm 73 that gets us through the other side. From envy to confidence in the Lord. So we've already read before verse 16 about envy. Spelled out in graphic terms. But then verse 16, he says, When I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. (laughs) They have an end. This isn't going to go on forever. So Psalm 37 says so much. Here it says, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The Lord's not threatened by them. When he decides to act, he'll make them go poof. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, notice what he says, I was brutish and ignorant. He says, envy is brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And the wicked can't say that. They don't have that. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, no matter what's in between now and what's to come, you will receive me to glory. So, whom have I in heaven but you? And who else in heaven do you need? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He gives us himself. He'll give us even more of himself. Progressively, now, here on earth, until one day he gives us himself face to face in a new heaven and a new earth. So, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart He is my portion forever. The end is coming. It's not yet, but it's coming. And that can encourage us as we fight away worry and envy. Also, we need to know that the Lord is faithful. Back to Psalm 37. The Lord is faithful, and this is scattered all through the psalm. You see in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord Trust in him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Your justice will come, just as sure as the new day. Verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. He gives us peace in the midst of the storm now. And one day there's peace with no storm at all. Verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. It won't be a deadly fall. 
not spiritually deadly. The Lord upholds his hand. I could just keep going. and You could see that theme spread out all through the rest of the psalm. Why fight worry and envy? Because worry and envy lead to all kinds of evils. Because the end is coming for injustice and inequity. And the Lord is faithful finally and even now. Even though it doesn't seem that he is. One more thing. And in some ways, the most important thing. I purposely spent most of our time with the diagnosis of the problem. And now we kind of come to the prescription. The third thing in your notes, the alternative to worry and envy. Or, as I said, the prescription for fighting worry and envy. What do you do to protect yourself from the temptation to envy? What do you do in the midst of temptation to envy? And what do you do when you are headlong and neck deep in years into a specific occasion for envy? Well, part of it is you do think about the rationale, part of the problem. The Lord commanded you to flee this thing, and he's the Lord, and we trust him. But I think also in Psalm 37, there are, there are additional four prescriptions to fight worry and envy. The first, do good. Part of it is just do good. You fight worry and envy by concentrating not on what you have and what others have, but by doing good. That's a much more important task. So verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Make a friend with faithfulness. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your path to the Lord. Commit your life to the Lord. Trust him for the details. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. And then in verse 16, we have a little bit of an explanation, an argument. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked people put together. It's better to have little and to be right with the Lord. So don't compare. Quit comparing. Mind your own business. Oh, I think especially in our age today, Christians need to memorize 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands. Get busy. Shut up. Mind your own business. Be quiet. And that's the happy life. Usually when people say, mind your own business, what they're keeping you from is something juicy and good. The Lord says, mind your own business. Our business is him. And so, one of the prescriptions for fighting worry and envy is to delight ourselves in the Lord. Verse 4 of Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. And that's a command. That's a command apart from the prescription to fight envy and worry. It stands on its own. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's why we quote it often. It's a command. It's a command that involves our minds. We have to delight ourselves in the Lord. We need to know that Lord and we need to know that it's a command that's not just our heads, but it's our hearts as well. It's emotional. We need to get our heads to think more than an inch deep about him. If we will have sustained 
and solid delight in the Lord, we've got to go deep. We have to work to stir up our affections. We have to keep preaching to ourselves the truth because the world around us is preaching to us constantly. It means we need the word. We need the word in some depth and we need prayer and we need some prayer and some length and and we need meeting with his people to remember who he is and what he said. We need to stir up love and good works with one another. That's the path for truest and fullest delight. The Lord's given you more than what someone else has. He may not have given you that IQ, that job, that paycheck, that wife, those kids, that retirement, that ease, that comfort, that lightness or seeming peace that they have, but he's given you himself. And he is the truest and fullest delight. It's his presence where there's the fullness of joy. In him we can taste and see that he's good. He gives us a river of his delights to drink, according to Psalm 36. He's our exceeding joy, according to Psalm 43. We're to be satisfied with him and his loving kindness. That's how we sing for joy and be glad all our days. So delighting in him fights off envy because it invites us to get lost in a God who is eternal and perfect and unchanging and is more than we need, even in poverty, even in sickness, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Do that and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean a quid pro quo relationship. Delight yourself in him, read your Bible, pray, go to church, and he'll give you whatever you want. He'll give you more than that guy has. No. You know it doesn't mean that. And just think about it. You delight yourself in him and your wants and affections get changed, don't they? It's almost like a glorious black hole. Just keeps sucking in on itself. I think that's how black holes work. I don't know. If not, just imagine that's how they work. (laughs) It's like that with desiring the Lord and delighting in Him. It increases our desire for Him and our delight in Him. And so our desires become His when we delight in Him. Delight yourself in the Lord and work hard at it. Trust Him. Trust Him. That's in Psalm 37. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. That's the very first prescription. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5 says. Trust Him and He will act. Trust his plan. Trust the execution of his plan. Trust his wisdom to dole out gifts and money and joys in his timing and according to his wisdom and according to his purposes, which are so much bigger than you. He's running a world. And he's running an eternal plan. And we're specks of dust. And yet, amazingly, he loves us, and he's good to us. And and we can say that anything that happens is from him, and it's for our good, Romans 8.28. And yet, it's all being worked together. It's a big plan. Trust him. You can trust him by looking to the cross, by knowing the gospel. You want to trust him? How about this? Trust the God who can pay for, clean up, fix and restore 
the ugly, heinous, self-deceiving, broken, petty, small sin of envy. Haven't we seen this morning how one untalked about sin is sickening? I hope you hate envy more now than when you came in. I do. That's one sin. That's one kind of sin. Oh, what hope would we have apart from the mercy that God shows in Christ? Where we could have all of his righteousness. There's only been one person who's ever lived who's never been envious. Partly because he didn't have any reason to. He is the Lord. And we're not. Partly because he obeyed his father. That's our only hope. Jesus, who was sinless, who took on sin, even horrible sins. Yes, like murder. Yes, like satanic worship or something. Adultery. You name it. And envy, too. Ponder what we really deserve. That's what envy's all about, right? Lord, give me my due. I just want justice here. This isn't fair. Friend, you don't want what's fair. You don't want your due. You better hope he doesn't give you justice apart from Jesus taking the justice of our, of our judgment. So I pray you know that forgiveness. I pray today you'd find the freedom from sin and guilt and worry in comparing yourself with others. And you'd see a great, glorious, saving God. And you'd know with us, the rest of us Christians here, that he's not done yet. And so one more thing, we wait for him. That's what we see in verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. It ends toward the end with this. Verse 34, wait for the Lord. This isn't it. He's not done. Wait. Their end will come. It's not yet, though. He will comfort you. A little bit now and a whole lot later. Wait for him. We don't know how long. But you can wait for him. You can trust him with your soul. You can trust him for tomorrow. You can be still. You can rest in him. You can have your identity tied up in him. You can be free from the comparison game. You can be free from envy while you wait for him to come and make all things new.